welcome Ilya. Thank you. Oh my goodness. That was such a mercury and retrograde like debacle of getting settled in. And I actually feel better that we're not doing Instagram too because it's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you on that one for my own selfish reasons. <laughs> so how are you? Uh, oh, she says, I am much louder than you. So I don't know if that's your voice. Should you take your headset out? Do you need it now or? I don't, I mean, I was only had it on because you told me I needed it. I yeah, since we're not doing Instagram, we don't need it to block out the feedback. So right, let me take it out, see if that's better. Yeah. All right, what about now? Yay, you're clear, you're crystal clear. Yay, Perfect. okay. So tell me, <laughs> how are you these days? I mean, we only met recently. We have a good friend in common. We mm -hmm. had a beautiful uh, afternoon by a beautiful pool. Mm -hmm. And we talked about you coming back from the UK and Seattle. Right. So how has it been for you during this pandemic time? And what were you doing in these awesome places? <laughs> well, it all really started because we had had, a, my girlfriend and I had had a trip planned to go to Thailand, but in the process, we were going to stop and visit family because it was en route and it kind of defeats the whole one straight to Thailand grueling, like, you know, 12 plus, I think it's like a 16 hour flight or something like that. So we, um, we're first going to go to the UK for five days to see her family and then proceed to Bulgaria to see my grandparents. Um, however, as soon as we got into the UK is when we got word of the travel ban and things escalating here and yeah. everywhere. So um, that's when her uncle, who had had connections to high places in government, essentially um, warned us not to continue traveling and to return to the States. But I wasn't having it because I was happy to be out of the country. I just wanted to continue as long as, you know, there was nothing stopping us other than, you know, other than our own fear, I was fine with it. So um, her family's freaking out because they don't want her leaving for Bulgaria. You know, it's not a third world country, but it's like, that's the last place you want to be during a pandemic in case you get stuck. Mm -hmm. So we get there and that's the first place where we're getting our temperature taken. And then the day that followed, was actually the, the was when they stopped letting incoming travelers from the UK. So we were like, we were lucky to just arrive a day before they put that ban into place. And then once we finished that, the last night before we were supposed to travel to Thailand, we find out our flight had been canceled. No one notified us. So we book a new one to go to Thailand, uh, show up to the, and then we find out that there's an inner city ban in Bulgaria and there's cops with checkpoints essentially banning you traveling unless it's essential travel. We're going to the airport, so, but still, these are the kind of cops that take bribes. So, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's just like that there. It's all mafia run, completely corrupt government. So, we leave extra early to try to avoid cops, get to the airport by 7 a.m., and then we find out that they're, all flights have been canceled pretty much. And we're almost stuck in Bulgaria and we can't go to Thailand because they now require a health certificate. Mm. Um, so luckily we're able to find a ticket that goes back to the UK to Bristol, which is an hour away from Cardiff, which is where Jade's family is, my girlfriend. So we fly back to the UK and then we end up on this like self-sustained eco property that her dad owns. He like, there are vacation rental barns that are really nice. And then he has his own house where he lives on the property with his family. 
And so we went over there and it's, it's funny how it was juxtaposed with everyone else's experience during the lockdown. Cause we were, I'd actually utilize being outdoors far more than I do when I'm at home and there's no lockdown than, uh, than when there is. So we're not isolated from people cause her whole family, you know, she has a whole family there. We're in the house with four other people. And then on top of that, it's just like countryside off the coast of the West UK. So we're going on like long bike rides, playing like board games, catching up on movies. So for me, it was actually a very pleasant experience. Um, and kind then, of idyllic, actually. It really was the most ideal place to be. And there was yeah. no coronavirus cases anywhere near where we were staying. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, it was idyllic for sure. And then we got back to Seattle on May 4th and things were already starting to kind of loosen up by then. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got back to LA on May 26th and that was pretty much my experience of the pandemic. But uh, the craziest thing was seeing like really dense airports be completely empty. Like it was almost apocalyptic to see like Heathrow so destitute. There was just nobody. Mm -hmm. Planes were empty. So it's crazy to think that, you know, I was traveling the world during a historic pandemic. You're such a rebel. <laughs> such a heretic. Yeah, no, it was, uh, but that wasn't really our, you know, our plan was just to go to Thailand and chill out. We didn't care if we got stuck there, but we definitely didn't want to be stuck in Eastern Europe. Yeah, so. I feel you. And um, before we go deeper, I also just want to let people on Facebook know that Chelio Bourdin is um, transforming the energy of our chat into one of his famous uh, live drawings. Hi, Chelio. Oh, that's, that's so awesome. He uses a fountain pen and he, we actually did a, an exhibit together at the Venice Biennale in Italy um, where some of his big pieces were showing and he, humanizing the icon was the exhibit. So this whole chat series has been born from this deconstruction of icon that started at the Venice Biennale. So that's a little little bit of backstory. I feel like I'm gonna I'm, we're running the risk of me being distracted now, looking at that icon off the corner and him drawing because it's it's pretty intriguing. I love watching the process. My girlfriend's an amazing artist, so I'm just I'm just blown away by the people that have the actual attention span to like contribute to the level of detail required. It's just amazing. It's amazing to watch. It's 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 an art form that I've always admired. That's beautiful. What does she do? Is she, does she draw, paints, all of the above? All of them, all of the above. And she's insanely critical of herself. I mean, no good artist is ever really happy with themselves is, is the common denominator I've grasped over the years. But, um, but yeah, she, she does realistic, but she can all, she also does some pretty fun abstract stuff, but um, yeah, she does amazing portraits. And um, lately she's been getting into some more, erotic stuff too that she's cool. been drawing that's really really good i want to see her stuff how is yeah, that i'll send you links to her um to her uh, profiles that she has where she posts her art oh beautiful yeah i think so speaking of art your mediums that i'm aware of are as an actor and musician mm -hmm. mainly yeah, uh, i try not to i guess i just have an aversion to like self-proclaimed renaissance men and people <laughs> Because I've worked, I've worked with people like that in my past, so I just try to kind of limit it. I, I take the more self-evasive, self-deprecating approach. I guess that's more of the comic in me because I feel like a lot of the more magic comes from humility than self-absorption. So I can downplay it. But the truth is, I guess if we want to be objective, uh, yeah, I mean, to me, I see them all as one thing. We can compartmentalize them into different things, but 
and make it sound like it's holy shit he's you know a renaissance man but really it's just you know it's it's art is art you know doesn't there's different mediums and forms but to me they all they are all share the same oversoul so um yeah i uh do music i mean i've i've loved film is the earliest thing that i remember but i always saw it together with film with music because i think that music can save a bad movie mm-hmm. but a bad story um but i don't think that a bad music can i don't think that a good movie can be saved by mad bad music that's the interesting well, juxtaposition. Yeah. Because like, I've seen really good films and good narratives with terrible music. And I was like, I'm sorry, I just can't with, with the music. Like my girlfriend- like it said, ruins the experience. It does. And, yeah. But then you can watch like a Michael Bay movie, like The Rock and Hans Zimmer scoring it. And it's when you're a kid and you know, you're not as cerebral. Um, I remember loving those films because of the music or movies like Armageddon because of the music. I thought the Armageddon soundtrack or the score was really good. And now I watch them with like a more developed intellect and I'm just like, you fucking manipulative assholes. Cause it's, so like, it's a, yeah, good music can make a bad movie and, but yeah. Bad music can't say, yeah, it's, it's a weird one to say, but, but, but bad music can hurt a good, a good movie. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, it can't say, yeah. So a good, yeah, a good movie cannot save a bad score. That's another way of saying it too. But the whole reason for that tangent for me is because I always saw them as one and the same. So I, I never really separated them, although as career paths, if you wanna be a guy in a band touring or as a musician, that's different from obviously being in film. At this point in my life, I feel like the way that I like to utilize those skills for me is to score and to direct and to act or, you know, like Chaplin did. For me, Chaplin really was a true Renaissance person to me. I thought he was a genius. I really Have you ever um, portrayed him? Uh, in fifth grade for when I did a biography on him and we were meant to dress up as the people we did biographies on, but not like ever, you know, seriously. Um, you know that he's in my movie. Did you know my movies about Mary Pickford? Yeah, I mean, Mary Pickford was in the in the Richard Attenborough one that, was it Richard? I think it's- Oh my director. God, that was- With Robert Downey? Awful, awful. <laughs> um, depiction of Pickford. I won't get into yeah, yeah, yeah. my whole feeling about the whole movie, mm-hmm. which I know as a director, he had issues with the movie too. Like he, that's another conversation, but oh my God, terrible Mary Pickford. Yeah, yeah but but Cha- but um, Downey as Chaplin to me just- Oh, he was incredible. Yeah, he yeah. was incredible. I really felt for him for losing the Oscar to Pacino that year for Son of a Woman, because honestly, I feel like I would have given Pacino the Oscar for other films, but that was the best work that I think Downey had done up until that point and how hard he worked for. He taught himself how to play tennis in, ambide- in an ambidextrous way. He taught himself how to play left-handed. It was a small detail in the film, like it's a two second scene of him playing tennis left-handed. No one would ever notice something like that. But, but he spent but he spent months training because that's how loyal he was yeah. to the authenticity of the portrayal. You know, I just thought that was incredible. I, you have an aura and I, I see the, the chaplain energy coming through and I'm not kidding. Oh, thank you, sweetheart. That's a kind thing to say. I appreciate that. But I relate to you in the sense of like how we identify ourselves, you know, as humans but as artists like the label of an actor or musician Mm because that's what you're talking about right when you say i see them all as one Mm -hmm. and i didn't call you a business man but (laughs) yeah yeah, like i could just be like the negative connotation i have with it in my head because of like i said some of the people that i've worked with and experienced in my life that you know write their own wikipedias and imdbs and like literally have said 
some have referred to him as a renaissance man but they had been the one that wrote that and I, to me that is just like the hokiest thing i feel like i feel like to compensate for that i need to tear myself down just to create balance in the universe again you know what i mean yeah. it's just a very hyperbolized way of explaining it but that's how much it's just like you know I, like i said it's just an aversion to that but but if, yeah, I mean, if you want, like I, the best way that I can put it without making fun or humility is that I, I do see them as like all as one. And, um, but to me at this point, at this stage in my life, I, the type of music that I haven't really lost a flair for is I've always loved scores. I could listen to scores in my cars or my car for hours. Whereas the idea of being in a band or touring as a band at this day and age is not something I'm super crazy about because it requires a certain degree of I just, and I'm not really as, I'm not as angsty as I was in the days when I wanted to be in a band and like I needed to like convey like the inner conflict and turmoil. I'm just not there. I just, I feel like the one thing that still has sustained throughout the years is the love for score and how it applies to film. And it's amazing how, how impactful the magic music can do for a scene, but also what a scene can do for a piece of music. If you hear a piece of music in your car, just driving about, I don't think it'll cement itself in your subconscious as much as if you have a narrative associated with it, like a specific scene. Mm -hmm. So when I go and like listen to certain scores and I try to find them on YouTube and you see the comment section, people are recalling certain scenes from films. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they just heard it in their car, it probably wouldn't have had the same impact. So I just love how symbiotic and essential those two, um, those two art forms really are. So, and I feel like in film, it merges them so I don't really have this insatiable need to be in a band or to really work that way. Even though I still do songs, the common um, denominator there throughout my life, how people have responded the way that I do even just my song songs are like, it's very cinematic, it's very compositional. That's been like a frequent thread as far as, far as response to my music. Oh, this song could, sounds like it could be in a movie or something like that. That's so, so, yeah, I feel so like, yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm just excited. Yeah, so it always comes back to film is what I'm saying. So it really st all starts with there. And you can weave comedy into there. I mean, you have stand-up comics going in and utilizing their natural form of improv in film as well. So you can take all these things that I love doing or, you, you know, if whether you're, and if you're, you know, draw like Celio here, you could be storyboarding or doing the graphic design. So it's like, it's it's in film, you it utilizes almost every single form of art. and. That's why it is my first love, really. Um, and I also just prefer how, I mean, every industry has its flaws, but I prefer the film industry over the music industry easily, hands down, any day. In terms of the actual machine of the industry itself. Yeah, yeah, because I feel like just as far as what's mainstream today, I just feel like it's become so homogenized and diluted and redundant that I don't feel that um, we have as many magical pockets in music as we used to. Mm -hmm. um, granted, we as a species are evolving and maybe, like I said, maybe we're not as angsty as a race anymore to have room for like bands like, you know, Nirvana or um, Pearl Jam or even like Blind Melon or whatever, you know, it's Smashing Pumpkins even, but it was, there was something so magically raw mm -hmm. about it. And that's what I really miss. I feel like you can take the current state of evolution that where we're at, but still not have everything be so watered down and um, and repetitive. I just feel like music, like even artists nowadays are just far more manufactured than they used to be back in the day. So I just kind of have, not in a, not in like, not 
overly cynical, but I am kind of cynical about the state of the, of the music industry today. Mm -hmm. Are you into like shamanic or indigenous sounds, music? Um, um, or like no. anything in the Vedic tradition or? I have a respect for it. Mm -hmm. um, from what I hear people experience listening to that form of music is, if, from what I've heard, I feel that a similar reaction to listening to certain scores or mm -hmm. when I listen to Chopin or Hans Zimmer or Thomas like Newman. Yeah, so it has that impact for me. So I feel like everyone, you know, this it's subjective and it's, it's whatever caters to what's going on within you in terms of, you know, your emotional state and then, you know, um, but for me, I just feel like I've always been kind of drawn to these very, the one word that is frequent that would describe the kind of music I like is epic, dramatic. Okay. You know? So that's why Hans is, I'm so partial to him. I just feel he's incredible. Uh, and him and Christopher Nolan, particularly together as a team is just out of this world. I feel like they've just knocked it out of the park so many times. I just wonder how you can ever like outdo the last project, which I, I think they came to that conclusion because he didn't score Nolan's next movie that's coming out on the 31st next month, Tenet. I don't even know what it is. I'm so out of the loop. I have no idea. Well, he did his film that's getting a lot of buzz because it's, it's the most expensive budget for an original idea in modern day. But he's been such a moneymaker for the studio since he did the Batman films mm -hmm. that they just give him whatever he wants. I mean, it's a $205 million budget. I know that the studio definitely doesn't want to release it as soon as July because we're, we're not even sure that all the theaters are going to be open. It's a nightmare for that kind of an investment to release it that soon. Everything else that's been even half as big as a film has been a year, but he's stubborn about releasing it now. And I think the main motivation behind that is to preserve the theatrical experience. I think he's willing to lose money and release it now so that people can see the magic of going to a theater before, because in a year from now, it might not exist. And I think that's, it hasn't been said in any articles, but I think that's why he's pushing and fighting with the studio to release it. And I think the compromise they came to was pushing it from July 17th, which is like his lucky day. Inception was released 10 years ago. So they pushed it to the 31st and that's as much as I think he was willing to compromise. Are you a Nolan fan? <laughs> say that I'm, I'm a fan of him as a director not the biggest fan as a writer i think he conceives some amazing um treatments and stories but i don't feel like he knows how to i feel like his writing can be a little expositional but we don't know who's to blame for that it could be the studio trying to you know make it more layman and dumb it down absolutely i've i've always preferred a more take your themes and implement them as a good story as opposed to revealing the central thesis of a film through dense exposition Agreed. And I feel like now it's so hard to do that. And I feel like nowadays, because there isn't, we don't, everything is so rushed and has deadlines and we don't develop anything. I feel like a lot of the themes and films are now released in just a, a character, like basically this heavy expository release of just like heavy dialogue. It's like, and you're explaining the movie rather than letting the story mm -hmm. portray it. And I think that's what happened with Interstellar. I don't know if you saw that, but <laughs> Anne Hathaway has this long scene where essentially she just explains the entire thesis of the film. People don't get credit for any level of intelligence, <laughs> like in terms of the public. It's I feel like there's a lot of yeah dumbing things. Yeah. I one of my number one rules, which is really crazy, because I've heard a couple people say it. I heard Killian Murphy, who's an actor, say this in an interview 
about Christopher Nolan. And for me, my number one rule, no matter how you feel about people, no matter how angry you are, the biggest, the biggest mistake you can make as a filmmaker or as an artist is underestimating the awareness or intelligence of your audience. Mm -hmm. It's Same one thing that you should never do. And I heard Killian say that once. And the fact that Chris continues to make movies that are so cerebral shows his respect for people and belief and faith that he has in them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's pivotal. Because if you don't have people like that, then we're just going to be left with a bunch of Michael Bays. You know what I mean? <laughs> He's getting Transformer movies forever and just like pretty much just at product placement for days and then like um, misogynistic scenes and then just like a ton of explosions. I Are mean, they still making those? Dude, they just, Michael just released, uh, did a film for Netflix, surprise, surprise. It was called Six Underground. And it basically, I felt like I was watching an Alfa Romeo commercial. I mean, it's what it is. Yeah. He gets endorsements from these companies. You know, he's just, he's just, he's, he approaches it very mechanically and, and it's very spiritually devoid. Mm -hmm. um, but if you can find a way to, as Nolan has, hybridize a blockbuster element experience of a film, create a tentpole, but also spark and ignite um, an inquisitive aspect of our nature, you know, then, then you're doing some real alchemy there. And I think that he's, because I love him so much is why I criticize his writing. The more I love something, the more I'll actually criticize it because I see how it can be even better. Yeah, it's, it strikes a chord. Yeah. So. And so it's, so I want to bring up this theme of icon just because you touched on, you're talking about Nolan, you're talking about, you talked about Renaissance man. Yeah. And so like this aversion to this inflated sense of self. Yeah. Sense of self. And what does the word icon conjure for you in terms of philosophically or your own just personal experiences? Icon. Icon for me is someone that can remind you of what you are capable of within yourself and can inspire you to um, ascend to those heights or even sometimes supersede them. You know, I think that there's this amazing video that I watched back in the day about how we deal with, you know, jealousy and envy is something we've probably all felt in our lives, but there's healthy ways of dealing with it and there's destructive ways of dealing it, with, with it. And that also comes, that's a difference between, um, I would say looking up to an icon or using it as a form of inspiration or idolizing them and worshiping them. Cause, that, cause then you are basically uh, cutting yourself off from the belief that you can attain the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when I've looked at someone and I've seen that they were better at something that I wanna be good at, I've used that as an inspiration to discipline myself, put in the work, and, and try to reach those heights myself, find a way that works for me to achieve the same thing. But that involves work. Unfortunately, some people are inherently lazy, lazy and it's easier to just denigrate um, the people around them because of their own issues with uh, self-esteem. But, and then as a coping mechanism, idolize and worship the people behind the velvet rope. And I don't think that's healthy. I think that having a celebrity culture is fine but I think it's unhealthy when, um, when they're seen as gods and uh, aren't held accountable for the things mm -hmm. that they do. So um, yeah, an icon for me is just having something, I think it's really important to have something that inspires you, something that you love, because otherwise nothing will ever challenge you to look within yourself mm -hmm. um, if something's not working out. Like let's say, you know, for example, I wanna have the success of Christopher Nolan, not in terms of his net worth, but in terms of the impact that I have on people on a global scale. Mm -hmm. So, you know, along the way, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a treacherous road. And if I don't have these consistent failures, I'm never going to be forced to look within. 
-hmm. So I feel like subconsciously or pre-incarnation, we set ourselves up with these hurdles and trials and challenges because that is when we are going to have to look within. Um, otherwise, growth is not possible. So that's kind of how I would deconstruct the idea or delineate the idea of an icon, really. So do you ever associate icon with something that you wouldn't admire? Like the iconic virus or the iconic... Oh, like an event? An event or an event or a person that's an icon for something destructive. Like they've become known as the iconic perpetrator, the iconic... I guess I never thought about it that way. I always... I always thought that icon would relate to something that was more, you yeah. know, you know, like influential in a, in a positive way that, you know, that is, is, is held in high reverence, essentially. I never really thought of like, you know, because, I mean, Hitler, in a sense, was a historical figure, but I guess I could never equate it to an icon. But, but of course, you know, you never really know how even just uh, treacherous historical incidents have helped shape we have been silver linings for creating a better world in the future. So in a sense, I guess in an ambiguous way, you could look at a destructive force like Mussolini or, or Hitler um, as an icon. Um, but I do believe that maybe, yeah, it makes sense. Anyone who's really had a sort of pertinent impact mm -hmm. on us as, as a race, our evolution or, or our history could be you know, referred to as an icon. For me, it was always uh, something, you know, that someone who's inspired me, I guess. That's no, how that's I cool. explained it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've, I've been, I've been questioning, like now I thought of the iconic system, like money or the, the systems that we feel, you know, beholden to, or things that we've sort of made larger than life. This is a question that I, I contemplate is what does larger than life mean? Do you, right have a sense of that can anything be larger than life like I don't think I mean I don't know that's kind of a paradoxical statement because right. the thing that's happening is a part of life it's like a piece of the whole puzzle right so I think it's just a hyperbole it's a figure of speech that we use to um paint a picture of just you know the importance or the impact of a certain event and it's all relative really but I mean that's just like semantics of <laughs> it is, but people put people in that position and they put yeah. them in that position. Like they get just even like the, the stress level caused by money, so to speak, is like this force that people are beholden to or they feel enslaved to or religion or certain types of organizations. They really seem to put almost above their own like yeah. livelihood or like you said, esteem. And I do think it's dangerous so it is it is very dangerous because if anyone challenges that external form of identity you can run into radicalism and fanatics mm -hmm. it's it's on a on a mac on a micro scale it's like football games it's like where fans will beat each other to death sometimes just because one beat the other's team and it's not because they are that passionate about football it's because these people are so afraid of their of facing themselves and finding out who they are people would rather experience i think i said this when we first met familiar suffering than potential unknown bliss mm. you know but that involves work that involves polarity integration facing your demons going within yourself but it's easier to just kind of adopt what's been imposed on you and that becomes your identity 
there in there's an example that I heard once from someone where they said, you know, if you have an 80 year old economics professor from Harvard or wherever saying that it's a science, but someone else is challenging that it's not a science because it doesn't relate to the natural order of things, that it's a contrivance, a human contrivance, that guy's going to use every last ounce of his cerebral prowess to deny that because that has become his identity. And that is essentially the difficult reconciliation as human beings we can make because we're still emotional creatures. So being objective at the expense of our own potential emotional turmoil is a very difficult thing to achieve, but it's my main aspiration in life. Mm -hmm. And to the average person that might look like, like Eugenia, for example, our mutual friend, she thinks she sees it sometimes as pride or being too hard on yourself. For me, it's constantly uh, um, releasing the weight off my shoulders and just kind of unshackling myself. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's never felt like I'm too hard on myself. Yeah, momentarily, it's a bitter pill to swallow, but potentially what comes afterwards is amazing. Mm -hmm. I prefer moments of suffering for mm -hmm. longer moments of, of bliss. It's like short-term pain for long-term gain or short-term gain for long-term pain. It's your choice. I always choose the harder route because it pays off more in the end. Um, and you're but, kind of talking about owning your, your own power in a way, like you actually are empowering yourself by being willing to swim through the muddy water to get to the clear water because you're not blaming an outside force. For sure. And I think that when you talk about uh, like what you're talking about with like how dangerous the submission to religion can become and whatnot, mm -hmm. here's the thing. Joseph Campbell, who I love, mm -hmm. essentially gathered, you know, a plethora of different little mini tribal religions and all these belief systems that different groups of people around the world had. And they all essentially, they all essentially told the same story. Yeah. But the problem is, is we're such ego led creatures that it's about the divide in religion comes whose allegory is better, whose version is better, mm -hmm. which is which is paradoxical. There's so much hypocrisy. It's like what your religion, what your religion's preaching and what you're doing to preserve it or hold it in higher esteem than the other allegories. Mm -hmm. So I think the need for religion, the need for icons and idols uh, in a way where not in a, not, not in a way where you're looking up to someone, I think that's healthy, but where you're idolizing other people is a coping mechanism for our refusal to tap into our own power mm -hmm. and how afraid we are of the unknown. So Essentially, you know, people can be very dangerous because, you know, not everyone out there is following their dreams or living the life that they want to live. And the coping mechanisms are going to be gossip or shit talking or, you know, whatever else that they do subconsciously or consciously to inflict pain on others. I mean, one thing that I talked to you about, Eugenia, is that, yeah, there's all these conspiracy theories about selling your soul for fame and whatnot. But essentially, if you're ever taking money, for doing something you don't want to do you're selling a piece of your soul whether it's in one transaction or multiple transactions throughout your lifetime mm -hmm. if you do something that you don't want to do because of a belief that's not in alignment with who you truly are that is selling your soul mm -hmm. even if you're at a stage of your life where you don't realize it's not in alignment yeah because it takes self-awareness to know if what you're doing or not doing is in alignment with who you are or not mm -hmm. but you still even if you're not aware of it you can still feel it's like oh fuck okay. i gotta go to work today i mean that's kind of a red flag that's kind of a sign right there you don't want to go to work so it's just like especially depending on how young you are or what you know your own i guess circumstances are sometimes it's hard to listen to those feelings or to even know that it's worthy. Like, how do you cultivate within, and this is probably a big loaded question, but within like a child, for example, the um, connection to intuition to know 
that when you're 15 and you feel that feeling, you don't actually have to do it. Like no matter who it is, you can say no, you know, it's a very interesting thing that we've sort of become where our intuition is like so buried. It's always there. And when you look back, you're like, oh yeah, I felt that. I totally felt that. But why did I not listen to that? You know? Right. Well, well, therein comes all the the programming and everyone's been subjected to different, you know, uh, levels of that, of, of, of the severity of that force, you know, depending on the child rearing or their environments or, you know, there's so many variables that play into that. So it's really kind of difficult to judge because some people probably, you know, are born with, with more strength to be able to persevere through all that programming and question everything and stay loyal to who they really are and might have a grasp of who they are younger on. Other people is probably not the same thing. And, you know, it's a little more difficult for them, but that's why compassion and patience, and it really always comes back to love. It's paramount. Absolutely. Uh, because that is ultimately what's going to remind people of that strength to push through. Mm-hmm. If you sit there and you give it to them as exposition or diatribe, it's not going to land as much as just loving a person. Mm-hmm. Patience, understanding. I mean, that really is the force that will help someone tap into their power. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of hypocrisy I see in a lot of new age writers that, you know, kind of capitalize on these understandings, but I always felt that it could be dangerous to have the, an understanding of these principles and, and try to acquiesce to them without really learning self-love first, because those are things that will happen naturally if you just live intuitively. But if you're trying to live by those principles, by, by just as if it's like some doctrine first that you need to be by, you might start repressing the very things that you need to feel to get you there. So there is a paradox taking place. Yes. And it is like, it's, it's, it is again, going back to the, the muddy water or like being willing to feel the pain Mm -hmm. um, in order to get to those, that bliss or that crystal clear water. It's, it's being able to kind of hold space for whatever it is that needs to come up. Because like you said, if self-love becomes, your religion, then you, you, you do risk like repression, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Something to really cultivate from within, not to beat into your head, into people's heads, you know? Um, so what I think I heard you say is that, um, idolization is dangerous because also it can uh, fuel people's feelings of inadequacy or lack of self-worth if they're coming at it from that perspective, which isn't admira- healthy admiration, mm-hmm. but really idolization, which is like, I am not that. And so I worship that because I am right. not that. Right. Rather than knowing that you can only see that because you reflect that. Right. So what do you think the relationship is between the icon so let's say someone who's viewed that way and those that would be um admiring or or worshiping that person is there a sense of responsibility in terms of how they embody the icon or do you think the icon doesn't even have a sense of icon or it just depends on the person obviously it's all very sure I mean, I'm pretty sure that there's a dramatic difference between Justin Bieber and Anthony Hopkins. You know what I mean? In terms of what they feel their role is in the world and, and how to handle, you know, the life that they've been given. So what's um, the difference between those? Well, 
Uh, well, I mean, I think that, I, again, I don't want to come off harsh here, but, and I don't want to, cause I don't, you know, I don't know him personally, but the thing is, is obviously when you're with him, I actually have a lot of compassion because when you, you, I don't believe that any child should be thrown into this industry. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have a firm and strong spiritual foundation before you enter into this business. Um, I think it's very important. Granted, some people's karma and lessons are not to have a strong spiritual foundation before going into this business. Maybe they're meant to have that experience. Mm -hmm. But in terms of navigating through it uh, in a healthy way, you either have you have to have a strong support system. You have to have people that are grounded around you. And um, uh, and again, I think that self awareness is really your greatest armory in 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 any sort of endeavor in life, really. Mm -hmm. Because uh, then that way you're capable of holding yourself accountable and not becoming cynical and resentful. Um, but I, I don't know. I guess if I had to speculate with some people, they might have unresolved pain and use the submission of an entire audience and how much they are loved and worshipped and use that as an excuse when they're like when they're challenged in their personal relationship and someone's calling them out on their shit. They could be like, yo, well, I have 120 million followers. I've, I've had people in my life, exes that have, you know, been well known in the industry. And when they've been in dark places and I've called them out on things that I thought they were doing that were wrong, it came back to making comments like, well, I'm a self-made millionaire and blah, blah, blah. And it, that's where it's unhealthy for the icon. I just got chill. Um, yeah. What do you say uh, in that moment? Like, honestly. There is nothing you can say and you don't, you back the fuck off and you just let them figure it out on their own because there's nothing you can say. It's, it's not worth falling you're like this falling is good down. by the way this is good yeah. there's nothing and when you get to, when you're talking to someone who and again there's variables of how close are you what have you been through together and then they come back and say something like that are they under the influence are they an addict um but you know that with something like that you back the fuck off if you have any self-love you don't engage in something like that um and that was while i was learning to love myself and then i had to remove myself from some from that situation no, i have a question wait i have a question yeah. So in that moment, the person that's saying, like, I'm a self-made millionaire, billionaire, I have 120 million followers, are they, this is really just a question, are they making those things their identity, their absolutely. icon? Well, absolutely. That's the thing, too. And that's, and that's the, the people that I suspect essentially end up being disgraced and ruined and going downhill because they're a victim of their own envy of the identity that they that they think is theirs. Mm -hmm. You understand? So it's like, because if you really, the paradox there is that if you really are the icon that people believe you to be, you would never have to make comments like that. If anything, you would constantly be wanting to make the world a better place and sharing your knowledge, your awareness and your blessings with the world. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a completely different attitude. I mean, I've known, I'm not, I'm not gonna name drop anybody, yeah. but there's yeah. people that I've known that really truly are like Anthony Hopkins types. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Where they're just, just amazed. They have an aura about them. They're just magical people. But then again, he's, had, he's faced his demons. He used to be an alcoholic when he was younger. He's been very open about that. Mm -hmm. uh, hilariously so. He said that, you know, he should be dead in a ditch somewhere in Wales, which is where he's from, which is where I was during the pandemic. Um, but, um, you know, yeah, I think that uh, there's other, other people who are aware of the blessings that they have in their life. One thing that I admire about DiCaprio is that he's given interviews where he said that he never thinks that he's invincible. He thinks that this career can be taken away from him the next day. It's not, there's no guarantee that it's going to stick. And that is the discipline that he's applied to his career. 
Um, granted, I'm not the biggest fan of his entourage, but um, uh, but I think that how he's approached his career is is very um, commendable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it just really depends. I mean, just like there's a variation. I think there's people that are a victim of the uh, idol that people have built. Like the, in Justin Bieber, for example, I remember using this example and saying that I feel like it's a dangerous thing to be defined by anything else other than what you define yourself as. Mm-hmm. Because if you're defined by what a public, what the public opinion is on you, then when they think you're shit, you're gonna believe you're shit. So you're a victim of that perceived icon that they've given you. You have to have an idea of who you are. You have to know who you are before that sort of star power is projected onto you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that that's what really becoming a star is, is being aware of it before all the external accolades come in. Mm-hmm. And also it's, it's a dichotomy too, I guess at times, because there's people that are incredible artistic um, channels, like they're really channeling, they're really performing or creating or doing things that are really super powerful. And, but when they're not in that particular role, um, it's some it's something else you know that's what the insecurity that can be and i'm again i'm not making a generalization this is only something i've seen and and i'm putting it on like a magnified scale because of of fame and all of that but this is actually universal it's like you're you're talented you're gifted everybody is in some form or fashion whether it's as a parent or as an artist or whatever but when you're not in that particular role that you identify with then you don't even, a lot of people don't even have a sense of, okay, if I took that mask off, if that role went away forever, who would I be, you know? That's an incredible, yeah, that's that, that's actually is an incredible rift that I feel that a lot of people in this industry have um, within them. There's this constant war where they feel like they can't even be themselves for a moment because of the pressure that's on them, mm-hmm. you know, to deliver as the commodity that they are. Um, you know, so it's, these are very important things to let yourself, you know, matriculate in your mind before you decide to go into something like this. And I just feel that when you're, a lot of the people are just so um, fervent to get into this industry and break into it, they're not even really sort of thinking about all the sort of potential pitfalls that come with it. I've been fortunate enough to not have it, you know, happen for me as fast as I initially wanted. And in hindsight, I'm actually extremely grateful because I never now looking back would have wanted that to happen for me with the person that I was before today. It's a gift. Yeah, it is a major gift. Uh, so, you know, I, I see it that way. And um, it's, it's like The Alchemist, which I actually, I read another Paul Coelho book before, but I know that everyone had read The Alchemist, but I didn't, I had it forever, but I didn't really read it until the pandemic, like when I was yeah, I reread it during the pandemic too. So I read it and I just, it's like, I think that is one of the greatest poetic portrayals of, you know, in, in, it's in the journey and not so much the destination, but in his sort of uh, endeavor to find his, treasure or where his dreams lie he discovers very paramount and essential things about who he is he finds out who he is as a person he becomes far more spiritually acquainted with himself and um, has a better understanding of who he is and then that sort of groomed and prepared him to handle the treasure in the end mm-hmm. and so I thought that um, books like that in the prophet which is my other favorite book by Khalil Gibran I think that 
instead of reading the more matter of fact, literal new age approach, um, which we have so many of those books, I find like, again, the poetic approach, like the, the alchemist or the prophet to be the more requisite reading material for an understanding of that. I just thought it was great. It was Me wonderful. Too. And I love the profoundness in, it really is the journey. Like the alchemy is so much in the journey of life and like mm -hmm. every move you make, every like vibration that you're emitting as you treat people a certain way, treat yourself a certain way, how you put yourself into your art. And I think that what I would love to kind of end with is um, how can we relate this to where we're at with the current generation of social media? So not going to the full-blown celebrity scale, but the way that everyone's trying to be, to curate their persona and, and be sort of famous within certain like microcosms. Um, can you speak to like the danger of that or what you could see as the positive um, in that or how can we find a balance there? I, I can absolutely speak on the danger of that because I feel like I almost do on a daily basis. And uh, honestly, it's it's very, it's, it's very difficult for me to see a positive in social media. Um, I guess the only positive I could really see was Facebook. Just if you ever lose your contacts or numbers, you can keep in contact with your family or close people that you haven't probably talked to or seen in years. It's really the only positive I could say. Um, I'd say that the circulation of information is good, but then sort of fact checking has gone, been swept under the rug, which, you know, uh, it is a dichotomy. But um, I think that now the more dangerous thing is that um, it's decreased our attention span. And uh, now there are people that are idolized that um, don't specifically have a skill or trade. It's just really the quality of their Photoshopping and the size of the yacht they're on or the private jet that they rented for five minutes to take a photo within. And then you're seeing young girls who are in adolescent stages envying that. And I just feel that it's, it's really sort of created an entropy that I would never thought I'd live to see. Mm -hmm. um, it came really fast and really sudden, kind of hit the ground running there with that one. But I feel it's a very destructive force. And honestly, I'm not opposed to completely shutting it all down. Mm -hmm. If someone shut social, social media down completely, I, I would be lying if I said a part of me wasn't super happy. I mean, I, I think I'd be happy completely. I've been th thinking about going back to a flip phone. I, I, didn't, I had a BlackBerry up until October 2018. I've oh only my God, me too. <laughs> So when I got this phone, I felt myself more exhausted. I felt myself exhibiting more um, addictive personality traits. Of course, I'm not comparing myself. I mean, I'm older, so I'm not, you know, I don't feel like I'm a victim of comparing my life to other people, but there are kids out there and I can't imagine what, what they must be going through. Um, and like I said, now it's not so, we're not, I, it's like, it's toxic to idolize and worship, but at least before we were worshiping and idolizing people who, had a, a, like I said, a craft, a skill, the money, the fame was not the means to an end. Now the fame itself is the means to an end. And that's a very dangerous thing. And the one name I will name drop was, is I remember being at a dinner a couple of years ago and Ringo, Ringo was there with his wife. Mm -hmm. And um, I was mostly talking to his wife, but Ringo said, said a story about his friend's daughter who was very young, who has told him that he wanted, she wanted to be famous. And he's like, oh, okay, well, what do you want to do? And she's like, nothing. I just want to be famous. And that to me was mm -hmm. extremely dismal to hear. It's very bleak. Mm -hmm. um, and 
he basically went on saying that back when they started playing as the Beatles, they had literally had no, they just liked to play music. And, you know, I think they said they were playing in like one of their parents' garage. They had no speculation or idea of what it would become. And I think that that is extremely important to go into something exclusively for the love that you have for it. But I don't even feel like social media is allowing anybody to really find what they love because they don't even, it's not even allowing time for them to find out who they are. There's just constant scrolling, comparing, this desperate need for likes and validation. I mean, the entertainment industry and having idols and worshiping, like we said earlier, was already bad enough, but I definitely do believe that social media has exacerbated that to a very toxic degree, for sure. So on a light note. Sorry <laughs> no. to end on that. Yeah, it's like, I don't have anything positive. I'm with about. you. Like I literally was not even on Instagram until last year, mm-hmm. like no joke. Um, so it was hard for people to even get me to promote the play I was directing. You know, it's, mm. it's been a challenge. I dove in during this time because I felt for me, it's actually truly been inspiring to connect with other artists and, and thought provoked people during this time. And how can we like bring out these themes and think about as storytellers too, what is our responsibility in this in terms of shifting the paradigm and um, so I've been really inspired by these talks and I'm, that's pretty much been my role on social media, <laughs> but, uh, uh, I really commend you for it. Uh, yeah. Actually on a light note, I commend you for utilizing it for something like this. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to use it, doing something like this is incredible, but I've posted quotes that I find and I hold so dear to me, like Carl Jung quotes on there and they'll get like six likes. But then I'll post a picture of like me and Marilyn Manson and it has like 200 and something like, so whatever the right? fuck. It's just, so, I mean, and it's, it's like, at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's shame on me for doing that. Cause it's really, it's, if I really wanted to devote my page entirely to that, I could just post things like that. But, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, it, that's also made me sort of be critical on myself and question if I even really want to, I've thought about deactivating it and deleting it and, there's all this pressure now, especially on actors and younger actors too, where managers and agents don't even give a fuck unless you have a certain amount of followers. And I'm definitely a heretic to that. I don't, I'm not going to acquiesce to that. I, if anything, I will do the opposite. Mm-hmm. Someone came across me and asked me how many followers I had. When, if I had gone into audition for a role, the first thing I'd probably do is delete my profile. If that's what it's come to, then, you know, pick up a camera, pick up a pen, do your own shit and let them come to you. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. You don't want to, cause you don't want to lose yourself in the process. Cause if you lose yourself in the process, then all of it is means nothing. Amen. No. Amen. And speaking of pens, Chelio. Oh, that's awesome. Are you going to tell us what? Hey, um. <laughs> hey. Ilya. Ilya. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. Chelio. Yes. I, I work several today and then i'm impressed about your voice uh, you transport in you all your life in your words it's very nice thank you Jelio. what you say is the true is not for make you better or beautiful or something it's I not I, you speak the truth yeah i hope yes. so That's my number one and, goal in life <laughs> and coming something uh, uh, particular works uh, is uh, uh, a beautiful 
woman, but it's like a Russian woman. You understand with cover the face and some flowers and energy from east and uh, in, on the top to the head have to spare i may read my my opinion then you have your you see what do you want and then you are free freedom you have freedom for this but i saw two different things one is love or this is love and one is the business and but to the center of this have a woman i think a woman in your life is the best helpful for the decision, for love for sensation for sense. yeah, a woman yes and then i i think is uh, the basic on your life and your decision east or west you know and again coming woman another woman with the two direction this is one direction is east is west you know you see mm -hmm. but in the mind is the the future is the direction this is the direction you want to be actor you want to be musician you want to be what you inspire but you are strong but i i i perceive a very powerful woman in your life is your mother your girlfriends your friends or what happened but is the best decision is coming from a, a woman i don't know I it could be like the feminine energy too yeah it's Absolutely. actually nasilio that what you just said was you know better than any psychic reading i've ever had and you'd be surprised without giving away any private detail how accurate what you just said and what you drew especially even visually it is yeah very yeah. very good you're definitely the real deal that's for sure yes you see the expression is yeah. very 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 deep this is these eyes say something you know these eyes say something have some small person can try to say something or in the darkness somebody want to come up but uh this is my opinion it's coming this uh Ilya, and this is what i do you know i only it's beautiful i only uh channelize your it's energy beautiful. and uh, you yeah. know it's, it's beautiful and and once again very accurate but that is that's can you send that to me yeah we'll send it to you. yeah no that is that is that is beautiful Celio. thank you so much oh, for doing that thank you new friend in my life oh he's really moved by your energy Ilya. <laughs> oh, Celio, you're come, awesome i come close to you because it's better <laughs> oh thank you Celio. <laughs> okay and um, thank you because uh it's not uh, you give me something you know i spend a lot of energy in this because mm -hmm. it's very 
hard to this because I walk inside of your energy. You understand? Is mm -hmm. freedom is true, but you give me a good energy, and then uh, I give you, you give me. This is very good. This is. Thank you. I think is the first beautiful things in the world. Share the things. In this case, we share energy, and then thank you. Thank you, Celio. Well, that's what it comes down to is, is sharing rather than, than taking, you know, so it's a give and take. I really appreciate that. That was really a beautiful piece. I look forward to getting it. <laughs> and then thank you, thank you, Jennifer, because Jennifer is amazing and she uh, do uh, a very interesting questions. And she does, yeah. You do ask great questions. I, that's, he's definitely right about that. And like I said, this medium, what you're doing here is I really respect you for it. I do commend you. Thank you. It was really fun. I'm glad we just did this spontaneously because we don't know each other. We just had a vibe through Eugenia. This was really, really cool. I actually want to just like talk to you more and get to know you more. Like I feel. Likewise. Well, yeah. I mean, we'll get together with, um, you know, with Eugenia. And Celio, you can come join. Yeah, Celio will come. I want to meet Jade and see her artwork too. Oh, I'll, yeah, as soon as we um, are done with the call, I'll actually send you links to her profile. Okay, beautiful. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. New friends. New oh, yes, friends, you know. new friends. <laughs> Artists That's uniting. So awesome. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna um, end the live stream. Okay, cool.